Hello, everybody, and welcome to the second episode of Buddha Pod. I'm Catherine. Hello, I'm Andrew, and today we'll be talking about the life of the Buddha. So I think when a lot of people think about the life of the Buddha, they just kind of think about the part where he meditates for 49 days and he becomes enlightened and he's the Buddha. But actually, he's a human being just like every one of us. And today, I really want to go into before he became the Buddha, the types of hardships that he endured and the types of decisions that he had to make that made him who he is today. And I think that those of you who are listening, you'll really be able to hear a lot of parallels in your life because it's a story of someone growing up. How about, Andrew, you start, because we're both really familiar. So let's talk about like the first part Mm -hmm. of the story. Sure. So what I wanted to start with is that this is going to be a two-episode sort of mini-series. Today, we'll only get up to the point where the Buddha attains awakening and actually becomes a Buddha. Uh, So this is going to cover his childhood as a prince, him renouncing his palace life and becoming a wandering ascetic and begging for food, and then eventually meditating and practicing, and then finding the middle way and becoming a Buddha. And the reason why we wanted to start with the life of the Buddha so early on in the podcast is because Venerable Master Shingyun, actually, in the biography of Shakyamuni Buddha, says that we can have a general understanding of what Buddhism is through the Buddha's words and actions. And I think this is very true. By looking at the life of the Buddha, what he said, what he taught, and what he did, we can understand how the Buddha himself practiced and how we can use that as a model for our own practice. I think we should start with the context in which the Buddha lived. And of course, the Buddha lived in a time much, much earlier than us, 2,600 plus years earlier. Mm -hmm. But there are a lot of things about his time that still hold true today. And although during the Buddha's time, he lived in ancient India, where people were put into, well, they were born into four social castes. And so these tasks were social positions that people were locked into because of beliefs at the time. And although we live in America in the 21st century in the land of the free, where we are supposed to pursue the American dream, I think this issue of social inequality is very, very much true today. I don't think there's any denying that People Mm -hmm. who are born into poverty are more or less stuck in that poverty. And those who are born into wealth are generally going to be continuing that wealth. And so even though the social context today is different, it's not too much different. And I think we still hold a lot of similarities. And so we can use that to understand the Buddha's situation. Right. And so I wanted to start with the childhood of the Buddha because he was born actually into the second social caste, which is the rulers and the kings. And he was born to become the king someday. And with that comes great responsibility because during his time, he had to study seven subjects and he also had to be good at martial arts and archery and things like that. And his parents, well, his dad, King Suradana, put a lot of pressure on him to do well because obviously he wants someone 
great as a leader. But Prince Siddhartha, he didn't, that was, that's Buddha's name before he renounced. Um, Prince Siddhartha, he didn't crumble under the pressure of having to do well all the time because he understood that, you know, this is his position. This is his role. So I think on the part of the Buddha, he actually accepted this responsibility and, you know, earned his parents' trust. And when I read this part of his story, it really reminded me of me as a child of an immigrant. We have we kind of have to fulfill these expectations that our parents had for us because they made so many sacrifices. Is that the same case for you, Andrew? Oh, yeah, it's totally the same case for me. So my parents are also first generation immigrants. They came over here after the Vietnam War and they made a lot of sacrifices along the way. So growing up, I always felt that I had to make all of those sacrifices worth it. And I really had to excel in school, get a good job and repay them for all of the things that they had sacrificed over the years and bring us out of poverty and sort of change mm -hmm. the family's future and all of that. And so it's a, it's a lot of pressure. Yeah, I feel like amongst all of that, I didn't feel like sometimes it would be like, well, this is my life and this isn't their life. Like, why are they putting this much pressure on me to go to a good school, like a name brand school? But I think in hindsight, they just want us to have a good future. And this is something that the Buddha or Prince Siddhartha realized really early on. That's why he excelled at everything that he did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And moving on, though, from that time in his childhood, there were also other times in his childhood. These were times when he experienced, he saw what the world was like. And some of these sites were very cruel. And so there were times when he would see birds eating uh, worms that were freshly released after the plowing season. So all of the soil would be tilled and then worms would come out and then birds would come to eat them. And so he saw how vicious parts of life were and how it was sort of a really cutthroat environment out there. Mm -hmm. It's really like survival of the fittest. And during that, he was kind of wondering why it had to be this way. There is this endless cycle of just competition and who survives, who wins and who loses. And so him like observing that it made him really uneasy and unsatisfied and also going back to like the caste system it was during an archery competition i think he was viewing it with his father and he saw that the lowest caste they had to be the servants and like they had to be working in the fields and sweating while him and his father were just having a good time this inequality also was unsettling to him I think that throughout our lives, we definitely can see a lot of these things. Oh, yeah. I think looking back into my childhood, there were definitely times early on when I noticed inequalities. I noticed, first of all, some kids would have things that I didn't have. For example, I had always really wanted a Game Boy Advance at the time. That wasn't something I had until much, much later on. And it was just because of financial differences between families. But then there are other things like, oh, why does that person not necessarily have a lunch today? Or why mm -hmm. does that person um, always bring lunch from home? And so there are things that 
as a kid, I had noticed that there were differences, but I didn't necessarily know the causes behind it. And I didn't know everything that led up to it. And so a lot of times I would just ignore it or not quite understand the full situation. Right. I think when it's not concerning us, like it's easy to ignore. And also adults will tell you that this is the way it is. Like this is the status quo. So you shouldn't worry about these kinds of things like inequalities or like unfairness. In the case of the Buddha, he just thought a lot about it. He didn't necessarily like do something about it then. He just kept it in his mind. As he grew up into an adult, it never went away. Moving on to his next stage in his life is when he is starting to take the throne. So as he's growing up, his dad is the one that's shielding him from a lot of the negative parts of life. And so the Buddha grew up as a very sheltered kid. His father, the king, is giving him all of these wonderful palaces and all of these wonderful environments to grow up in. And so he's not really exposed to things like the death of close ones and things like that. And of course, the Buddha's mom actually passed away seven days after the Buddha was born. But that was at a time when the Buddha was still an infant and likely didn't necessarily register what was going on. Uh, mm -hmm. So... His dad had protected him from a lot of these things. And I think for any parent, that's a very natural thing to do, whether or not you're a protective king. As a parent, you don't want your kids to necessarily see all of the terrible things that go on in the world. It's very instinctual for parents to cover their children or turn them away when a car accident happens, because that's not something that they want their children to see. And I think at mm -hmm. this part, we can kind of understand where uh, Siddhartha's father, uh, King Suddhodana, is coming from and what his idea is. Yeah, he saw his dissatisfaction with, you know, the world around him. And he, the only way that King Sudana knew how to live his life was to be a king. So he was doing the best that he could to make sure that Siddhartha became the king that he will be in the future. So he wants him to follow his footsteps because that's where he has experience. And while like his methods are kind of questionable, King Suradana basically threw dancing girls at him, like threw like temptations at him, made sure that he was never worrying about anything materialistically. It didn't ease the Buddha of his dissatisfaction, but it did create the illusion that everything is okay and the palace is a constant thing. Like it'll always be this wonderful place that nothing bad ever happens. But unfortunately, um, that's not always true. And so yes. as he got older, there were times when he was finally allowed to leave the palace. And just as things would have it, each time he left the palace, he saw something different. And so there are four times when he left the palace. And on these four trips, he saw things like an old person. And upon seeing someone like that, which he had never really seen before, he would ask his chauffeur, well, chariot driver, but like the chauffeur at the time, and ask, mm -hmm. what is going on here? Who is that? Why Why does the person have white hair? Why is his back all crooked? And why does he use a cane? His driver would say to him, my prince, that's an old man. Your father is going to be like that one day. You are going to be like that one day. And upon hearing this, it was a complete shock to him. Because he had grown up in such a sheltered environment, it never really occurred to him that at one point, stage in his life, he would grow old and weak and decrepit, and everybody he loved 
would also go through the same thing. The same mm-hmm. thing happened with a sick man. As he was pouring through the city, he encountered a sick man, and the same conversation happened. What is that? What's going on here? And then that's a sick person. You're also going to end up like that someday. Your family is going to end up like that someday. Everybody you love is going to get sick at some point. And so he was shocked by that too. And then eventually, death, coming across a dead body in a funeral and realizing that no matter what, everybody had to get old, get sick, and eventually pass away. But it's on his last trip, though, that is sort of the positive one because he saw a wandering ascetic. And you can kind of think of this as like, I guess, a monk in a sense, someone who lives an ascetic lifestyle sort of in the forest, Mm -hmm. meditates, does various spiritual practices, but not necessarily a Buddhist monk because Buddhist monks didn't exist at the time. But I think we can, like in our conception, we can think of it as something rather similar. And so he saw um, a monk and he asked why this monk seemed so carefree and happy. And so the monk replied to him saying that he was on a spiritual journey and trying he was trying to find the end of suffering. And so Prince Siddhartha was really inspired. Yeah, he that. definitely was. I think there was no one around him in his life that could do that for him, like offer him that other way out, an alternate path of how his life could be. And I think upon seeing the four sides or the first three, he really realized that this world is impermanent and there is, in fact, people that are suffering. That's what really, you right, like you said, the inspiration that al- allowed him to really think about this path. And I think in our process of growing up, there's going to be something like that where there's going to be a big event that impacts your life where you think, oh, I'm definitely going to do this. Like, But it's keeping that motivation that's that is the hard part so there are some challenges that ensued for him when he talked to when he went to go talk to his father about this definitely and I think tying it back to like how I've been going through college right now I think a lot of my experience has been sort of going through school going through this normal average lifestyle but then Mm -hmm. also thinking about these questions like well, this still will happen. I'll still get old. I'll still be sick. I'll still um, pass away. And like, all this is sort of festering in my mind, of course. But then what I wanted to focus on is actually the role model part. And I think it's always very helpful to have that sort of inspiration and have that sort of role model. And to be honest, a lot of my role models are monastics. There are a lot of the venerables that I meet at the temple because they do Mm -hmm. so much and they're so happy doing what they do that I'm just really taken aback by that. And I'm really inspired and I admire them. Yeah, for sure. Like the venerables at the temple, they don't get paid. They are working overtime all of the time. Yet they don't look forward to the weekend because there is no weekend. They are always working, but it's for the betterment of the devotees and just Buddhism in general. So that is definitely something that I, a lot of my role models are venerables at the temple as well because they work tirelessly for other people, their whole life. And so as he's thinking, or as Prince Siddhartha is thinking of this after he's been inspired by this wandering ascetic, he decides, well, he's thinking about leaving the palace and becoming an ascetic himself. And so at this point, he goes up to 
his father who's trying to get him to stay. And he asks his, his father if he can be granted or at least guaranteed that he won't die, that he won't get old, he won't get sick, and that all of his possessions would stay with him. And this wasn't mm -hmm. something that his father, even as king, could guarantee. And upon realizing that, the prince says, well, then you can't really keep me here. I think at this point in the story, he realizes that his father can't do everything for him. And the Buddha, he decides like he's going to help himself, like he's going to change and he's going to go on this path. And it's definitely not a path popular with the palace because they're losing an heir to the throne. And I think that sometimes in the midst of meeting our parents' expectations, their wishes for us, we have to realize what we're passionate about and really just go with what you're passionate about and not being limited by the parents. If you think about it, at Buddha's time, there was no, there wasn't a Buddha yet. Like there was no one to do that job for him or he would, there was no one that he could look to except for maybe the aesthetics in the society. So he had to go to pursue his dream. And he felt so strongly that he is going to leave everything behind and go find the ultimate truth. Mm-hmm. And so upon deciding this, he ends up leaving his wife and newborn child to become an ascetic. And I think this part sounds really odd to a lot of people because it sounds like the Buddha is just having a midlife crisis and running away from home. But we have to really remind ourselves that this wasn't an easy choice for him. He didn't just drop everything and run. He really thought about this for a really, really long time and decided that it was the best decision for not just himself, but the people around him too, because he wanted to find a solution for all of them. And I think being sheltered for so long, like being sheltered in the palace really made him realize that this isn't the life that he wanted. The easier path would have been to stay in the palace and, and take over his responsibility. But um, he decides to revolutionize himself and go through with this crazy plan. People thought of him, thought of this plan as like a crazy plan. Like, you know, how could you give up being a prince? I, I'd like to remind everyone that this is like a place of privilege. Like it's good to be a prince. Like you'll live a good life. But his compassion towards others was so strong that he couldn't just leave them behind. Like he couldn't just not care about those things. So that's why he decided to do this, not because he doesn't love his wife and his newborn son, but because he he cares about all sentient beings. Like he has a compassionate heart towards all sentient beings. Therefore, he decided to make this very hard decision. And yes, when he becomes an ascetic and when he goes off into the forest, he's going from being really, really high up in society, being a prince, to being a beggar. He doesn't know where his next meal is going to come from because it depends on whether or not the villagers give him anything the next day. And so he's really leaving a lot of his life behind. And I feel like being from like that high of a status to lowering your status, it takes a lot of strength to lower your pride and beg for food when before like his life was servants, they come at, at a snap of a finger. And so I feel like that's, an interesting like parallel to 
in our lives when we are the babies of the house, but then when we go out into society, we are treated differently because not everything is about us anymore. I mean, I have siblings, so I'm not really like that sheltered and like... I'm not really the baby of the house, but I know that Andrew is an only child. Would you mind sharing your experience oh, with us? Oh, yes. Thank you for the jab at my only childness. <laughs> Shout out to any only children who are listening to this. <laughs> because I definitely felt that. So I grew up as an only child, definitely spoiled, definitely got everything that I wanted. All of my cousins Must know this be too. nice. I know. All of my cousins are like, yeah, you're spoiled, which, yeah, I am. But then when, <laughs> when I started volunteering at the temple, I wasn't special anymore. Like, I was put to do things that I never had to do around the house. And actually, one day, the Venerable asked me if I could help mow the lawn. And I looked at him, <laughs> and he saw my face, and he said, please don't tell me you've never mowed the lawn before. And I told him, I'm sorry, <laughs> but I've never mowed the lawn before. And he shook his head, and he was like, well, I guess you're learning something new today. But I think it was definitely very uncomfortable for me at first to like go to a new place and completely be unfamiliar with the things that I was doing there and all of the chores that I had to do around the temple, all of the positions I was put in at the temple. And then I do feel like it was really helpful for me, though, because it built me up to who I am today. And I think me, myself, this is true to a very small extent, but to the Buddha, as he was going through his ascetic practice, he was letting go of all of these habits that he had accumulated as a prince and all of the expectations that he had as a prince and just letting go of all of these one by one by one. And as mm -hmm. he's doing so, he's also learning from a lot of teachers, learning things like meditation and a lot of the other spiritual practices at the time. Right. And that requires really strong mental power. Like you really need to be strong. Aesthetic practice is really hard on the body. Because he was eating one grain of rice per day. And you also had to be strong mentally so that you wouldn't collapse. And that kind of reminds me of athletes. So the Winter Olympics was recently in February. And a lot of these athletes, like when they share their story, they talk about the training that they have to go through and the discipline. And I kind of question, like, what is this all for? But it's for that one day they can earn a medal. And this is the kind of strength that is comparable. I don't live in a place where I'm like, there's a food scarcity or anything. So, you know, that part of the story, like really inspires me because the easier way out would be just to return to the palace and, and tell his dad, like, yeah, you were right. This is really hard. But he pulled through. Eventually, spoiler alert, he realizes that this is not the right way. He realizes that the middle way is actually the ultimate path to liberation. It's just that this is a necessary part for him to become who he is today. Yeah. So at this point, when he realizes that he's not going to become awakened through self-starvation and essentially self-torture, he decides to accept an offering of rice porridge from a local shepherd girl. And in doing so, he starts eating again. He starts bathing. He starts mm -hmm. regaining his energy and lives a very moderate lifestyle. And I think at this stage really shows the importance of being able to accept someone's help, too. Sometimes, like, I feel like we get tunnel vision. You're trying to say, like, oh, I did this all by myself, and, like, I want to achieve this, I want to achieve that. In Buddha's case, like, this was at a time where he had no physical strength, and he really did have to accept 
that porridge, but it doesn't mean that he's any less than the person who is offering it to him. Because without Buddha accepting the porridge, the shepherd girl could not have offered this porridge to the Buddha to be. So they're equal. And I think that accepting someone's help is not a bad thing. It's just like it helps us realize that we're all relying on each other for things to be done. And it's not something that we should turn away from. Like it's okay to rely on other people and not be self-reliant all of the time. Mm -hmm. If we were self-reliant, this podcast wouldn't exist. And I think that's a very good example of that. All of the things that go into this podcast, all of the things that keep it going, we don't live in a vacuum. So mm -hmm. after accepting the offering, we slowly move to the climax of the story. And the Buddha, having now regained his energy, sits down under the Bodhi tree and starts to meditate. And as he's doing so, Mara, which is often translated as like the demon, which is essentially sort of a personification of his inner fears, his doubts, and all of these things coming out, starts mm -hmm. to attack him. And so... Mara starts by offering lots of rewards, like think of all the power that you'll have if you just leave and go back. Think of all the wealth and all of the companionship. All of these people are waiting for you at the palace and you'll live so happily. But the Buddha mm -hmm. looks at all of these and thinks they're not permanent anyway. And so mm -hmm. those fade away. And then he gets hit with a bunch of threats like, oh, if you don't leave, I'm going to kill you. I'm going to do this. I'm going to hurt you and all these things and all these fears. But the Buddha also is not moved. And I think this really reminds me of a situation in a really sort of high stress situation where we have a lot of self-doubt and we think like, oh, I should just quit. I shouldn't be here. I shouldn't be here. Mm -hmm. And for me, a lot of times, this is usually during like an exam, during a test, um, or even during like a performance where I'm just so terrified and I'm creating my own stress. I'm creating my own fear at that point. We put a lot of stress on ourselves and those fears are really just based on our attachment to the result and our attachment to like are other people going to like this or am I going to do well and it's also very short-sighted so I guess my point is Buddha saw through this because he saw in the long run like in the really big picture these things don't matter anyway so that's how he was able to conquer and that's how he was not phased by all of these things because Obviously, it's tempting, but he sees that this is only right now. It's only for a short amount of time, but he could change his perspective and realize that, you know, in the big picture, reaching enlightenment is his goal, and he's not going to let these inner fears stop him. And so I think this is also, there's another aspect that I think a lot of people can relate to, and that's the point where all of these fears fall away. And for me, this is the other part of the test when once I get into the test, once I start filling in bubbles or writing in the answers and things are coming to me, I get to a state of focus where I'm only focusing on the test. I'm going to answer the questions. I'm going to do all of this and I'm going to finish it. And once I switch my attention to that, all of these fears sort of drown themselves out and they become part of the background noise. And mm -hmm. I work through it and I conquer this test. I'm done. I turn it in and hopefully I'll do the same thing tomorrow when I do my final and then I'll just <laughs> <laughs> final season yeah. is rough. Like that week 
I think my eye bags like went three shades darker. It's, <laughs> it's so bad. Um, as you were talking about that though, I was thinking about like, okay, so let's say, let's use this final exam as an example, right? I feel like the Buddha like did his homework, like he did his studying. So like all of that aesthetic practice, you know, the meditation, he did his studying before the test. So when the test comes, he's not, there's that initial like anxiety, but he's not afraid when it comes. But, you know, I don't study. So like <laughs> sometimes when I just get the test, I freak out and it's just, there's nothing I could do. Like if you do badly on it. So I think the Buddha story is also a story of diligence and perseverance. Like you really have to keep your initial mind and make sure that all of your conditions are right for your success. So it is all in your control. Mm -hmm. And it's something that I think is very similar to Buddhism in that no one can do it for you. No one can study for you. No one can prepare for this for you. You have to do mm -hmm. that work yourself. And it really yeah. pays off in the long run because once you do put in all of that effort, it shows on the exam, it shows in that final paper. Okay, so... We've this... hit his enlightenment or his awakening. Next episode, we'll talk about, you know, how he taught and his life after enlightenment. And so before we close for the day, I just wanted to say thank you to all of our fans. We hit 101 likes within a week of this podcast being released. I am so grateful for all of the warm support that has um, Thank from you, all of you so much. I know some of my friends are listening and I just can't thank everyone enough for the support. Again, if, if you have any questions or comments, feel free to email us or leave us a message on our Facebook page. We really appreciate it. And again, this is BuddhaPod. I'm Catherine. And I'm Andrew. See you next week. Bye.